Game Cool Books, Episode 75, A Taste, A Memory. We're in Chapter 32, Morning. The morning comes, the night decays, the watchmen leave their stations. Lines again from Blake's poem, America, Prophecy. Interestingly enough, the ghosts who are watching over Will and Lyra are departed, and we hear about Lee's ghost again. So evidently, uh, whatever John uh, Perry had done, uh, or not done as far as his promise about keeping Lyra safe, uh, it's all water under the bridge at this point. Lee's ghost is able to go to his rest, um, and so is Will's father. But we'll see that there are some other watchmen here that are still very much on guard on behalf of Will and Lyra. Our characters are in the place that they saw through the window and that these ghosts saw with them that made him think of his own homeland, a golden plain full of other colors and all the shades between them. Again, this is an idea that recurs a number of times in the book, uh, an image that goes back to Lyra looking at the sky and that will go forward to Will's demon uh, when she's described a bit later. And among them, there's also uh, blacks and whites and, and the tints between them as well, a bright kind of black and shining, um, a bright blue that's the reflection of the sky. Um, and the sounds are going to uh, mimic in some way the images here. There's a murmuring, uh, not a silence. Uh, there's notes of bird song. The bird song compared to a bell. Um, might bring us back to that Keats poem, uh, Ode to a Nightingale. Will and Lyra are asleep back to back. Uh, they're described as being very much uh, alien to this environment. Their stillness, their quiet, and also their color here. They're described as so pale they might have been dead. It's a lacking in that vibrant color that everything else seems to have. And they're covered in dust. Um, this is the ordinary sort of dust that we'll hear about a few times here. And they're in the last stages of exhaustion. Uh, again, perhaps standing in for the authorial presence in his work on this long story. The description that we get um, of Lyra coming awake is that she's pulled up like a fish from deep water. And on the face of it, uh, it's evocative, but there could even be a reference here to um, some of the fishing nets that we'll see later um, and their uh, sort of um, biblical allusions that um, are inescapable, even if not intentional. Anyway, she seems to reflect that there's no arguing with the sun. Um, so the first thing she notices is that Pan is not there with her. Um, but then she feels her weariness um, she hears the bell song of the bird, uh, and she feels how good the world is. Um, she'd almost forgotten, and that's what Lee's ghost had told her, one of the last things that he said to her, was how good the world is. Um, Lyra looks at Will and takes in a number of very fine details, again, starting with the dust in his hair, uh, but then also the pulse at his throat, uh, the shadows cast by his eyelashes, very uh, intimate details. And she feels self-conscious about this. She doesn't want to be caught looking at him. And so um, she looks away and 
we see that they had dug a grave for uh, the Chevalier and the lady. Um, she takes a stone to place at the head of the grave. So this was the last thing they did the night before and they didn't quite finish. Um, the grave is described as being a couple of handspans wide, which is, I think, also exactly what we're told about the size of the amber spyglass itself. So again, there's a curious interrelationship here uh, between these key objects, uh, in this case, their guides and protectors um, through much of the story and the guide and protector that they will have for the remainder of it. Um, on seeing among the variations in this plane that seems to go on forever, uh, enormous trees, Lyra wanders at them, but she's motivated more by her thirst on seeing the cool spring. Uh, she wades in um, and feels the cool mud. Um, maybe this recalls her story of the uh, battle with the brick burner's children. And she dips her hair in the water to lift all the dust out. Um, so a kind of um, baptism in a way. She finds Will is awake and looking out just as she had. Um, and with the kind of wonder that uh, he also displayed on first reaching the world of Chitagatsi. He asks about the demons. She knows that he's asking about them, even though they don't mention them uh, specifically. And so this wavelength that they're on is, is clearly shared. They both feel that the demons are not far away. They're not truly severed this time, um, the way they were in the world of the dead. They can only remember bits and pieces of the, the night before, how they each held each other's demon. And there's awkwardness about this. Um, and about the fact that they don't know the name of Will's demon. Uh, Lyra says she was trying to see through the window to her friends one more time, and when she looked around again, the demons were gone. But it's like when they would play hide-and-seek when she was little, she says. She was too big to hide. She always knew where Pan was, even if he camouflaged himself as a moth. Uh, again, perhaps a significant simile given the use of this image later in the book. And She's trying to dispel an enchantment, we're told. Uh, this, of course, is what she was quite literally under for the first several chapters of The Ember Spyglass. Um, trying to clarify in what sense they are still one being. But we're distracted now as there's a tremor of movement and then a low rumble like thunder. And it's unclear if... Will catches a glimpse of the demons, these moving shadows, or of the movement of the beings who are coming towards them. His first thought is they might have to fight, and so he wants to get a drink first. Um, his wound, again, is bleeding, and he longs for a way to clean it off, a shower and some rest, of course. But uh, Lyra is able to read the alethiometer and we're told, lightly as a bird, she lights on the meanings of it. Um, even as Will is getting ready to fight with the knife, she can tell that this strange gang, uh, this cross between antelopes and motorcycles um, with trunks like small elephants, they are uh, sent by none other than Dr. Malone. Uh, that's 
what the lithiometer tells her and not to worry about them. They notice, just like she did, that these creatures have a kind of individuality, an air of intention about them. They're people, they're individuals, not mere animals. Um, but Will still keeps his hand on the knife as they approach. Uh, one speaks in response to Lyra asking um, and tells them that they are to come see Mary, that they are to ride, and the Mulefa will carry. And there is a rhyme built into this um, uh, this phrase. But uh, they um, may be uh, accidental, or they may be due to the musical nature of the Mulefa's own language. Um, the backs of the creatures are, of course, diamond-shaped, so a saddle won't fit. Um, but they can use uh, bridles and stirrups. Um, they can use their experience of riding the bear and the bicycle, uh, respectively, um, to um, manage uh, to stay on. <laughs> and uh, neither had ridden a horse, we're told. Uh, but um, that comparison uh, makes me think, actually, of the, uh, the horse-like beings in Gulliver's Travels. Again, uh, they're also described as hay-scented. Um, a bit later. So these uh, um, mulefa carry them uh, along. Uh, they're like horses. They're like motorcycles. They're like uh, soft chairs. Um, they uh, follow the strange black roads and um, use a kind of uh, connection to the land which is very unlike the roads that Will is used to. Um, their wonder at this is directly uh, connected back to Mary's own on meeting these creatures, um, their surprise. But uh, how much of this is uh, uh, really um, the narrator sort of interpreting for us, and how much of this is directly Will or Lyra or both um, is a little bit hard to say. Uh, the camera jumps around. Um, we get a kind of montage here of them noticing different uh, aspects of this strange world. Um, so Lyra's watching Will lean into the corner, and then she learns how to do that to, to ride more comfortably and finds the speed exhilarating. Uh, they both point out the trees that are enormous and majestic, the strange birds with their screw-like motion through the air. Again, the uh, carpenter the craftsman, Pullman, perhaps coming out there, um, the lizard uh, that's in the middle of the road and takes no notice as they go around either side, uh, the smell of the sea, um, and then uh, the view of the village. So finally they get down to walk a bit and take in the village below before riding down again. And this final rush uh, is described with uh, great exhilaration of language to mirror the feelings of the creatures, which transfer to Will and Lyra themselves. They laugh in response, the way the creatures love this rapture of speed. So again, that sympathy, that connectedness uh, is very prevalent here um, and is communicated from one character to another uh, and among the different characters here. So it's interesting that Mary doesn't come herself. It's unclear what she's doing that's uh, so important. Um, 
But uh, when they arrive in the village, there she is, her stocky figure, both strange and familiar to Lyra. Uh, and her meeting with Will entails a dance of sympathy and awkwardness. So there is a limit to how much uh, feeling can be directly communicated, of course. Um, we can't say everything quite outright, especially if we are uh, British people, uh, English people. Uh, so instead, um, instead of hugging and kissing as she does with Lyra, she, uh, perceiving that Will is nearly grown uh, and that she would never uh, hug a man uh, that she did not know, um, and since she does not want to cause this friend of Lyra's to lose face, she wants to show respect, uh, instead she shakes hands. And in this way, that understanding and respect and liking uh, flow between the two, and they feel that they've made a lifelong friend, and we're told that indeed they had. So we get a kind of glance forward here, uh, and we'll get a few of these before the end of the book. And they always do seem to come more from Will's side than from Lyra's. Um, but anyway, uh, she introduces Will, uh, Mary introduces herself and perceives uh, that they must be hungry, and of course that they're very tired as well. So as they uh, take their refreshment here, uh, all very natural ingredients, um, milk, uh, nuts, and salad that's too rich for them at the moment, um, despite their wish to do justice to this generosity of their hosts, um, all they can really eat is the bread that again is described as being like a chapatis or tortilla. Um, they find that a little is plenty, though Lyra tries a bit of everything. And Mary avoids asking any questions, answers a few of theirs about who the Malefa are and how she arrived, and then uh, lets them take a little nap or siesta. The scene jumps to Tal asking her about the children, that they are two sexes. Um, it's easy for Mary to tell, but apparently hard for the Mulefa. Um, she says they're not much smaller, and yet they have less shraf, the dust, uh, which the Mulefa can see. Mary, of course, can too with her spyglass. And she asks when that will come to them. Mary thinks it's soon, although she doesn't know for sure. And of course, there's no wheels uh, for them to uh, have a, a ritual uh, coming of age. Um, then uh, they are working as they talk. And so um, Mary is mostly narrating here, since Atal finds it difficult to talk while working with her trunk. Uh, she tells about how she knew the children were there. And she's a bit embarrassed to say, although it wasn't the I Ching this time, the sticks, it was mystical in another way because it came as a dream. Uh, the word for this in the Mulefa language, a night picture. Um, these creatures take their dreams very seriously and they have vivid dreams, uh, perhaps because of their connection to dust, which seems to be connected to the imagination, um, consciousness, but also perhaps the unconscious or the uh, liminal space between them. And Mary describes seeing um, someone who was uh, old and yet not old, um, 
a female of her uh, human race and um, a wise one. So the uh, idea, of course, of hearing a voice without seeing its speaker is confusing, but it seems that Mary did get a glimpse of whoever it was talking to her. It seems that we are to understand this was either an angel or a witch. It is not yet entirely clear which, um, though she doesn't describe her as an angel. Um, that she had a quality of uh, leadership about her and, and wisdom. Um, but as she says, this uh, agelessness uh, is particularly difficult to pin down, and the best she can do is to explain that it is her make like her metaphor uh, to describe the strangeness uh, and authority that this being had. Now, she's not told uh, why um, that she uh, must help the children, um, or nor does she know exactly how uh, they might help, but uh, it seems that even a tall person is able to tell that they have something to do with stopping the shraf, the dust, from leaving. Um, so we jump again uh, to one more scene here uh, where strangers from another uh, part of the coast have come to the village. Um, Lyra's just stirring now, and she can't tell if these newcomers are angry or joyful, but their excitement is palpable. Um, they can't um, entirely explain it to Mary herself, and she hasn't got time so she's going to go with them and see for herself. Um, again, the urgency here is a little bit confusing um, since she does normally seem to be chiefly concerned for Will and Lyra. Um, also the fact that they don't appear to be in any great hurry to go and find their demons who of course were the uh, chief objective in the entire war, uh, the ultimate battle there between Azrael and the authority and his forces. Um, but anyway, uh, they are left uh, apparently safe in the village while she goes uh, and um, rides through the, uh, the night, um, this coolness and darkness and the skeptical wonder that she feels, uh, again, sort of moving between her and the world around her. Um, once more, she doesn't use the spyglass, not this time because she doesn't need to in order to see the dust flowing out of the world, but because she's moving and so can't use it. Um, so all these different ways that Pullman seems to be at pains to limit the use of the uh, amber spyglass, um, though he does use it for the key metaphor and the title of this book. Um, they find a trail by some trees that lead them through a gully uh, with a kind of murmur, um, and end up at a opening like those made by the knife. Um, it's like a cave, but of course it is going into another world, and out of it is coming a procession of ghosts. So the reference to the cave there is one of the few that we get, but we do get a few in these couple of chapters, uh, taking us back to her work, her world, and the computer system that she used to first begin to communicate with dust. Of course, it was named uh, as a reference to Plato's cave. Um, and again, this is something that doesn't get a lot of play in the story, but that 
phrase at the start of this chapter, you can't argue with the sun, that does seem to perhaps reference uh, the Platonic uh, 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 worldview uh, by which the sun is taken to be a kind of metaphor for the good, the principle of being, um, which gives rise to all other beauty, truth, and goodness. So at any rate, these ghosts are making it out of the cave and back into the world, into the light or the dark, in this case, um, into the, the real world again. Uh, they cause the ground beneath her mind to give way. She has to physically hold out her hands and touch to be sure that she's still in the physical world. Um, she notices that these ghosts are of all different ages and appearances, um, and that when they come out, they all show great joy. Their faces transform with joy before they vanish. They hold out their arms as if embracing the whole universe, and that arms out figure is, of course, a cruciform figure. Um, the uh, crucifix will get a mention in the next chapter, too. But they, of course, are not suffering here. They are experiencing the uh, the coming true of all their hopes and wishes. They drift away to become part of everything. And yet, before they do, they seem to want to tell her something. She feels their cold touch, and then one old woman beckons to her, and in time she's able to hear her say to tell them stories. Tell them true stories, and everything will be well, she says. Now, it's unclear whether the old woman is some sort of wise woman, perhaps a witch of incredible uh, advanced age, um, or if she is not talking about Will and Lyra uh, this time, but about the harpies, and that's who the pronoun there refers to. Um, it's interesting that either one uh, could be true, or or we can understand it to be both. This is another example of that poetic ambiguity that um, perhaps is also represented by the children not being in a hurry to go and find their demons. Um, and at this point, uh, Mary feels again that she's in one of those moments where we can recall uh, our dream and the emotion that we felt in it before it fades away. Um, so this imagery of ghosts emerging into the world again, uh, of dreams that are true and powerful and yet fade away, um, or that we're unable to recapture somehow, uh, all this made me think uh, forcefully of the Aeneid, um, the image of Aeneas returning from the underworld um, and the question there about whether the gate that he comes by uh, means that he is in some sense a false dream. Um, so I think that's uh, a reference that's perhaps implicit here. Um, now, all that's left, she says, is this sweetness and the injunction to tell them stories. Um, as the ghosts come out, they are like refugees returning to their homeland, um, exactly what Lee thought on seeing this world um, in a literal way, but here, again, something metaphorical that nevertheless connects powerfully to the current politics within which um, Pullman is contextualized as he writes the story. He is making it as clear as he can that he thinks the central moral injunction really is to tell them stories um, to children and uh, perhaps 
to our um, to our uh, more what you might call uh, religious figures as well. Now we come to chapter 33, and the poem this time is something a little bit different. Uh, the lines, sweet spring, full of sweet days and roses, a box where sweets compacted lie, comes in the third uh, and final bit of variation on the theme um, of sweetness in George Herbert's poem, Virtue. The first line of the poem, sweet day, so cool, so calm, so bright. Uh, the second stanza starts, sweet rose, hues, hue, angry, and brave. Um, this again is the third. Now each of these stanzas ends with the line, for thou must die, and thou must die, and all must die. It's building, building, building the sense that all beautiful things that are ephemeral and in the world must die. The final stanza of the poem runs, and only a sweet and virtuous soul, like seasoned timber, never gives. But though the whole world turned to coal, then chiefly lives. So clearly, George Herbert's metaphysics are not shared or endorsed, perhaps, by Pullman. Um, but he finds this a, a beautiful line to pluck out of that poem uh, to head his chapter, Marzipan. So, Lyra here is waking from a dream. This must be just the next morning. Um, she's dreaming of Pan coming back to her in his final form, which she loves, but on waking, she has no idea what it might have been. So again, this um, theme that runs throughout the story of dreams, um, their power and their mystery, uh, we get it echoed one more time here. Um, she is clearly thinking about Pan and worried about him, but again, not in an anxious or uh, grasping sort of way that would run counter to Keats' uh, concept of negative capability, per se. Um, she wakes to find herself naked, and she's indignant before seeing that there's some clothes left there for her. Uh, and though they don't fit, she is glad that she is decent once she wraps herself in them, uh, a shirt of Mary's and some cloth from the world here. Um, she thinks that Pan is so close she can almost hear him. Uh, she feels that they're connected somehow, and she looks forward to when he'll forgive her and come back, and they can spend hours talking and tell each other everything. Now, the irony here, of course, is very forceful when we know what we do about the way the story ends and the way that Pullman's subsequent stories of these characters are going to go. Um, because they never do tell each other everything, at least not up through everything that he's released uh, through the Secret Commonwealth and uh, the short story, uh, Serpentine. Um, then there's this uh, forceful reminder of how much she has grown. Um, she used to swim naked, of course, with uh, the children in Oxford, um, but with Will it would be different, and she blushes to think about it. So she goes down in this pearl morning, again, kind of an echo of Mrs. Coulter there, um, that, uh, that mother of pearl uh, imagery that was associated with her on the clouded mountain. Um, the heron uh, is kind of a, a version of these dangers, this white bird um, that, of course, is 
not interested in Lyra at all. Uh, and she is unaccustomed to bathing in seawater, uh, which has come in on the tide here. Um, so again, there's all these kind of echoes or um, premonitions of danger uh, associated with the Tuolapi um, and the force that Father Gomez, if no one else, still represents, the force of the authority. Um, but they're all quite subtle. And of course, Pan's absence is brought back to mind right away. As she comes out of the water, she remembers how Pan would normally dry her, help her. Um, she wonders if he's a fish laughing at her, a beetle creeping into the clothes, uh, a bird overhead, or if he's off with the other demon, Will's demon, and not thinking of her at all. So she goes to fetch her dirty clothes, but finds that someone has already washed them um, and hung them out to dry. She wakes Will, who's sleeping under the tree, and um, he reaches at once for the knife. Uh, but he, of course, is disoriented as she was on waking, um, and he's naked as well. And so she looks away, uh, passes him clothes through the branches. She says that Pan is still hiding, um, but he responds more to the idea of a swim, uh, still longing for that shower, presumably. Uh, he feels that he has years of dirt on him. And again, there's so many instances in these few chapters of the mention of time, um, of young and old, of generations, of years, um, and the physical, normal sort of dust uh, is very present, as well as the uh, metaphorical and ethereal sort. So he goes off to bathe, uh, and Lyra wanders through the village, uh, but doesn't look too close at anything. She doesn't want to seem impolite in case there's a code or taboo um, of that sort here. She notices the buildings are old and new, but all of them built into patterns as if they persuaded the wood to grow a certain way. Um, she can perceive this order in everything and the layers of meaning are explicitly compared to those of the alethiometer. She's eager to puzzle them out and presumably she would be able to um, as long as she can find that poetic uh, observant mood. But she's also a bit worried because she knows that they might not be able to stay there very long. Um, this is, again, a little bit of foreshadowing. Uh, indeed, they will not be able to stay for long, um, but perhaps long enough. Um, again, children, the wheelless Mulefa children are staring at her, peeking at her around the houses, and she'll suddenly turn and look and make them jump uh, and squeal with delight. Um, finally, um, everyone wakes up, the village comes to life, um, they set down to uh, breakfast or tea, and they tell each other everything. Um, of course, not the demons, uh, but the humans. So Mary suggests they may as well have their hands busy and work mending nets while they do this. So this is where the resonance of that waking like a fish pulled out of the sea comes into play, I think, uh, because the idea of mending nets, of course, uh, could refer to the um, calling of the disciples, uh, as we get it in the book of Matthew. Um, it's James and John who are mending their nets uh, with their father uh, when Jesus calls to them, and they go with him at once. Um, there are a number of uh, fishing images um, that might also uh, come to mind here. Um, but anyway, 
Mary is also wary, uh, <laughs> the rhyme on carry and prairie, uh, but also worried. Um, so there have been large numbers of the tulapi, the white birds, uh, that uh, she's keeping an eye out for. But in the meanwhile, they're working, um, keeping busy. Um, of course, the idea of work that is reiterated here so many times in quick succession uh, could well refer to the punishment or anyway, the consequence of man uh, leaving the Garden of Eden. Uh, and also uh, the kind of delight and craftsmanship that Pullman is so keen to read into that story. Um, Lyra starts telling her story uh, back at the moment, so long ago, when she and Pan hid in the retiring room, um, that idea is ascribed to her, both her and to her demon. Um, and the time now is uh, shown to be passing through the imagery of the tides and the sea. Um, so not only might we be thinking about the time, the duration of the story itself and its chronology here, but also the time it takes to tell stories, um, the proper setting within which to tell stories and all of the ways in which that can be used to pass the time, um, all the different purposes that stories can be put towards, whether to bring people closer together, to show trust, um, to share information, uh, or again, simply to help um, make a task lighter. When the tide does go out, um, they're able to take uh, one of those paths which are like part of nature um, to another place uh, as they go. Mary talks about how perhaps it's not that they made the roads, but that the roads made them, the mulefa, um, able to be what they are because of these uh, natural features, such as the lines of the flows of ancient volcanoes uh, that make it possible to use the wheels, which come from the trees, grow naturally, um, and fit the bodies of the mulefa so perfectly. She describes the formation of those bodies, those uh, diamond-shaped creatures, a lucky chance uh, that in our world, led to backbones and spines in this way uh, uh, falls out such that diamonds are, uh, are preferable and yet there are a few creatures here with a spine uh, the snake which is important to them um, just as in the story of genesis um, and will picks up on this language of chances here um, of course in his case it was not a snake but a cat that uh, showed him the way under the hornbeam trees and through the window into the world of Chittagatse. He reflects that if he'd arrived 30 seconds earlier or later, none of this would have happened. Um, the uh, time that he and Lyra are in his Oxford, uh, they are talking about something uh, pretty similar. Um, so this is a theme that gets reiterated a few times and generally in the context of uh, Pullman's cosmos of uh, multiple worlds. But at any rate, um, he comes to the point in his story where the witch kills his father and then herself. And he says how he never understood that. Um, clearly, he was never really meant to. Um, the witch didn't think he could understand um, that sort of love. Lyra suggests that perhaps it was because of the witch herself um, and the way that they love. 
because they're fierce. Um, and then um, Mary opines that perhaps it is a kind of uh, ferocity built into love and passion uh, itself, um, independent of the witchiness of the person. But Lyra feels sure that when or if Will does love somebody, he will never be unfaithful, um, just as he talks about his father and um, knowing that he can tell his mother that she was true. Um, Lyra, Lyra thinks that he will love someone like that. Um, we might recall here that, of course, her parents uh, are not so faithful. Um, Boreal is one of many lovers we're uh, given to understand that Mrs. Coulter takes in her climb to power, um, and Azriel uh, spends at least one uh, evening with Ruta Scotti, uh, among perhaps other witches and others. So they come to uh, their destination here, the uh, beach, which, which is glistening uh, and exposed by the tide. Um, there's invisible movements uh, everywhere. It's a quiver with life. They uh, don't notice, apparently, that Mary is always scanning the horizon for a flash of white sails, but there's nothing but a kind of a vagueness, a pallor uh, sparkling there um, at the horizon. And so she tells them they're here to gather the mollusks that the Mulefa love but can't uh, easily uh, uh, harvest. And so they work together so they can have a feast. Um, and meanwhile, uh, they keep uh, listening to the stories that they're telling. Um, now, we're told that the telling takes a long time, that they won't get to the world of the dead that day. Um, so it's not clear exactly where they wound up uh, in their their storytelling here. Um, and we never really get um, much interpretation here uh, of what they think, just certain things. Uh, for example, that bit about love, uh, and then about here the uh, the demon and the ghost, this idea of a three-part nature to human beings, which Mary recognizes as um, uh, church dogma um, developed by St. Paul of the spirit, soul, and body. Um, and she references the Catholic church of her own world here. Um, now, they don't dwell on this, uh, and they don't cite scripture for it, but um, Will immediately picks up on the fact that as far as he's concerned, the best part is the body. That's what the angels told him, um, that it would be a kind of ecstasy for them to have uh, flesh, to have a body again. Uh, this, of course, is quite contrary to the Pauline doctrine um, as developed by the Catholic Church, or even indeed as it's present in passages uh, from his letters. Um, letters such as the Corinthians, uh, the Thessalonians, the Hebrews uh, are places where this is drawn from. But um, anyway, they uh, want to uh, tell a little bit ahead of the story here. Uh, Will is about to say something about how they were discussing this very question in the world of the dead, but Lyra tells him to wait till they get to it. And the smile she shows him confuses his senses Mary observes a kind of trust on his face she has never seen before. Uh, and this is very much like Will himself observing between the angels, Balthamus and Baruch, um, a more perfect love and trust than any he had ever seen. 
Um, so they go uh, back to the village. They have their meal. Um, again, Mary learns that the Tuolapi have been busy uh, destroying other villages. Perhaps that's why they were not out at sea. Um, and this is very unusual for them. Uh, normally, they're content to take out one at a time and then return to the uh, wherever it is they come from. Also, uh, another wheel tree has fallen. Um, and yet, uh, Mary was there at the grove just the other day and noticed nothing wrong. So uh, clearly, there is a kind of um, urgency to figure this out. Um, she feels that weight of responsibility placed on her by the Mulefa uh, and their wise ones, um, like a heavy hand between her shoulder blades. She repeats to herself that she will tell them stories. So we've been prepared for this uh, a couple of times. The scene is set. Uh, they're sitting on their rugs in the flower-scented night. And Mary begins her story. So wherever they got to in Will and Lyra's, uh, they have transitioned now. And she describes her work, how much time she spent having to find funding and didn't have enough time to actually do research. Um, and then tells Lyra that she made that program that the alethiometer uh, told her about and um, set up the system so that she could talk uh, to the cave. They said they were angels. Um, and uh, when Will points out this must have been surprising, as a scientist, she uh, clarifies that she was a nun. Um, again, that detail that Lyra was able to pick up on uh, in order to gain her trust or at least her attention. So we get more of her backstory then, um, that she had intended to do physics to the glory of God, uh, but later found the physics was more interesting anyway, and she determined that religion, Christian religion, was a very powerful and convincing mistake. That's all. So the question that sets her off on her story is, when did she stop believing in God? And she remembers exactly uh, that uh, that moment. So again, she was a nun in an order that was not shut away, um, just had to wear crucifix. Um, she was planning to do research and teach, and she was invited to a conference in Lisbon. Now, she had never left England, um, and so the entire experience was uh, quite a thrill for her. She singles out the flight, the hotel, the sun, and the languages. Her nervousness and excitement on meeting um, so many important people. And she stresses that she was so innocent. Uh, she was a good little girl going to mass. She had a vocation for the spiritual life, or so she thought. She wanted to serve God, to offer up like this. And she shows with a gesture her life to Jesus. He's only named in this chapter. It happens a couple of times. Um, but of course, she's pleased with herself too. She feels very holy, very clever, up until half past nine on the evening of August 10th, seven years ago. So we don't get a year um, precisely, but we are told within the context of the story exactly when this was. Um, the evening 
uh, was a kind of relief for her, uh, having presented her paper and answered the questions. She felt a great pride in herself and her work. Uh, so when she's invited to go out with her friends uh, and colleagues to a restaurant, instead of excusing herself as she normally would, she thinks she's grown, she's presented an important paper, she's among good friends, it's so nice and warm, they have interesting things to talk about, and they're all in such high spirits, uh, she accepts. She finds this other side of herself that likes things like wine and music, and she eats in the garden in a, a bower of passion flowers under a lemon tree. Um, so this is very much like the kind of dream of Chittagatsi, only something real. Um, there is a man opposite her that she'd noticed around um, from Italy uh, with uh, beautiful hair and skin and eyes. And she shows with her second gesture here how she pushed his, uh, rather how he pushed his hair back. Um, and Will, we're told, thinks she must have remembered it very well. Um, so maybe because uh, Will has been noticing how Lyra tucks the hair behind her ears. Anyway, Mary says this man was uh, clever and funny, but not overly handsome and not a charmer. Um, so it was easy for her, the easiest thing in the world, to talk to him. And she's starting to flirt and hopes that he thinks she's pretty. She notices herself forgetting all her vows and Jesus and all that. Um, she feels a kind of silliness, and yet she also gets the sense that she had believed in something that wasn't true. Um, not chiefly about God and Jesus at this point, but the idea that she could be happy without being in love, without ever, as she puts it, um, going to China. Um, now, of course, the I Ching uh, is an important part of her um, connection to her family, uh, presumably a part of her family that isn't so concerned with religion. But anyway, um, this idea of China has been um, seeded at least a little bit. It doesn't come totally out of nowhere here. Um, and rather than that, it's a taste of some sweet stuff that reminds her um, that she had been to China, that is, had been in love, and had forgotten until the taste brings it back. This is the marzipan of the title. Um, this is, in Lyra's world, March pain, as she says to herself when it's described as sweet almond paste. Um, but of course, this is also uh, probably a reference to the famous moment at the start of Proust um, in Search of Lost Time, where the taste of the Madeleine and tea uh, is a, um, uh, a kind of reminder for him of all of his long uh, story and memories that he tells uh, in the kind of stream of consciousness. But um, Mary goes on to, within the memory she's already describing, recall this other crucial moment uh, when she was a young girl, 12 years old, at a friend's birthday, uh, at a friend's house in the backyard, uh, there's a disco, a kind of dance. Um, so they're outdoors again, there's music again, it's clearly a nice day. Um, 
Normally the girls would dance together, the boys would be too shy to ask, but someone she didn't know, a boy, asked her to dance. And she can tell, and she says, when you like someone, you know it at once. Um, so suggesting that Lyra and Will are old enough to know what she means about this, um, though they're hardly 12 themselves. Um, so at the end of the uh, party, the boy takes some of the birthday cake, the, mar the marzipan, uh, and gently puts it in her mouth. And she feels herself blushing and falling in love just for the way he touched her lips. Now, at this point, the narrator pulls uh, us back to the present and into Lyra's perspective as she feels something strange, the feeling of a house opening up inside of her, the lights coming on uh, in all the rooms. Um, now, this is a passage that is uh, pared down slightly in the U.S. edition of the book. Um, according to uh, the Bridge to the Stars um, FAQ, the UK edition goes, as Mary said that, Lyra felt something strange happen to her body. She felt a stirring at the roots of her hair. She found herself breathing faster. She had never been on a roller coaster or anything like one, but if she had, she would have recognized the sensations in her breast. They were exciting and frightening at the same time, and she had not the slightest idea why. Sensation continued and deepened and changed as more parts of her body found themselves affected too. She felt as if she had been handed a key to a great house she hadn't known was there, a house that was somehow inside her. And as she turned the key deep in the darkness of the building, she felt other doors opening too and lights coming on. She sat trembling, hugging her knees, hardly daring to breathe. So it's much expanded in the original version there. Uh, Mary continues her story, uh, and if she notices Lyra's excitement, she doesn't uh, show it. So perhaps she's so caught up in her own um, memory now, and the memory of the memory. Um, she says that she can't recall exactly if it was that night or another when they kissed, but it was in a garden and there was music. She was aching for him, her whole body, uh, and he, she could tell that he felt the same. Um, they were almost too shy to move but then one of them must have, and then it was like a quantum leap. They were kissing, and it was more than China. It was paradise. So there is this kind of repressed or forgotten memory, um, perhaps because of the pain of losing uh, this young love. Um, they only saw each other half a dozen times before his family moved away, but it was such a sweet time, she says. And there's that direct reference to the line of the poem in Herbert. Uh, this could be at least partly autobiographical for Pullman as well. Uh, his family, of course, moved quite a bit uh, when he was around that age. Um, at any rate, uh, something that most readers perhaps would be able to relate to. Um, he says she had known what it was like to be in love. She had been in love. She had been to China, or as she says, to paradise, um, to that garden, that enclosed garden of the Song of Solomon. Um, but uh, Lyra knows exactly what she means with that house inside of her, uh, though half an hour earlier she hadn't known at all. Um, so again, a very strange, precise uh, indica indication here uh, uh, of the time that's passing as they're telling these stories. Um, 
this is a kind of uh, uh, key moment um, in which uh, that house in her is expectant, waiting. Um, and so uh, it's the taste that made it all come back to her. Clearly here, um, some analogous process is happening by which her expressing and communicating this story is causing something to awaken in her listener. So she asks herself, um, did she really want to live without feeling all that again? And Mary tells herself that no, there's treasure and mystery um, in China. That would anyone be better if she went home and said her prayers and confessed? And answers, no, there was no one to condemn her, bless her or punish her. Heaven was empty. So it's interesting here. Uh, she can't tell whether God had died or had never been at all, but she felt free and lonely, unsure if she's happy or unhappy. Um, and this is all in that moment uh, as she tastes uh, the dessert. The man across from her could tell something had happened, but it was too private almost for Mary herself until later as they walk along the beach, um, she makes one, yeah, one more dramatic gesture, takes her crucifix from her neck and throws it into the sea. And that was all. Uh, so we get some follow-up questions here from Will and Lyra asking if this was the same man as uh, the one who found out about the skulls. No, uh, Oliver Payne came much later, again, implying that there was some romantic relationship perhaps between Mary and him. Um, this man's name was Alfredo Montale, um, that mountain word built in there. Um, did they kiss? Well, not then, but apparently later. Um, and we'll ask, was it hard for her to leave the church? It was more so the disappointment it caused her family, Mary says, as if their belief depended on her um, still believing in something she no longer did. Uh, but it was easy for her in the sense that... Um, Without God, it all made sense. Uh, of course, this kind of dichotomy between science and religion is about to be questioned, but in the sense that all of her nature was engaged now uh, and not only part of it. Um, she did not have to repress anything anymore. Um, and yet she felt lonely. So she never married, uh, but did live with someone else for a while and scandalize her family yet more. Um, but eventually uh, they decided to separate. And so she's on her own with her work, her mountain climbing that her former partner uh, taught her, and walking in the mountains, solitary but happy, as she puts it. Um, there is a, a kind of limit to her memory here and her storytelling capability because she can't really tell what this uh, first boy was like. She can't recall other than that he looked nice and his name was Tim. Um, but uh, she is reminded by Lyra that she said she didn't have to think about good and evil as a scientist. Did she when she was a nun? Well, she knew she should be thinking certain things about them, um, but she was really more interested in other things. And so neither as a nun nor a scientist did she ever have to uh, wonder or think about good and evil for herself. And now she does, as Will points out. Um, did she stop? believing in good and evil when she stopped believing in God. This is the Ivan Karamazov 
idea from Dostoevsky. Um, no, she says, uh, not insofar as they are powers outside of us of good and evil, but simply names for what people do, not for what they are. People are too complicated to call simply good or evil. And Lyra here agrees, and presumably Pullman does as well. The question comes, does she miss God? Again, it's more the sense of being connected to something bigger than herself. So to God and thus to all creation that she misses. If he's not there, then she still has good and evil, which she defines as helping others or hurting them. But without God, she doesn't have, she thinks, that connection to all of reality. Um, her sentence then trails off. She hasn't yet thought this part through, or she hasn't done so to the extent that she can answer the question at this point. In that space, in that silence, there's a, a bird call that descends melancholy. Um, each of the listeners, a tall dozing, her attention only half there, Will on his back looking at the stars, and Lyra uh, trying to keep from trembling with that sensation uh, inside herself, wondering what it means and telling herself that soon she'll know. So Mary's tired. She's run out of stories, but um, no doubt she'll have more tomorrow. Uh, so what we need as readers, of course, is the answer, the missing uh, portion uh, of that if-then. And we're going to get that um, not as this unformed uh, possibility left up to the listeners, but provided in a form that Mary herself comes to realize uh, in the next few chapters. Um, this time it's not an inset story or memory, um, but as a kind of discovery. Thanks again for listening.